Welcome. This is the first e-book reading I will be doing. Um, some of you may or may not know I've written a couple of books that I've self-published over on Amazon. Uh, I wrote them for the fun of it, and I put very little effort into marketing them, trying to sell books, whatever. Kind of just they just sit there, per percolating in the back of my mind. Uh, as far as having, as far as promoting them, whatnot. So. With this YouTube channel, I'm going to start reading them, basically. Uh, and I think it'll be kind of fun way to do it, you know, as I'm reading stories. So I've got two, written three books, but the two I'm going to dig into, uh, one is non-fictional short stories. I've got about 90 short stories, basically covered through my 20s and 30s. You know, I'd written an entire volume it was through my 20s. I wrote it when I was like 30, right when Rosie was born. And that was great and all. And I've actually got that up on Amazon right now. But then now, 10 years later, I crammed in another decade worth of stories. And I'm in the final touches, uh, the final process of finishing all that, where I can get it up onto, you, or onto Amazon. So as I'm getting into that, I'm basically going to start reading from the beginning. Uh, probably going to do like three to four chapters per video. Uh, we'll see how long it takes. It'll be experimental. As far as whatever sort of editing to do with it, I might be taking the occasional sip of coffee. And at the moment I'm reading off the computer, which I suppose is better than reading off a hard copy. So, take a breath. This first book is called Secrets of Alaska. Uh, it's just telling about growing up in Alaska and all the stories that I, all the trouble I try to get into out there. Talking into my coffee cup. He leaned forward. <laughs> he leaned forward then and held his gnarled hands out to the firelight and the flames through his shadow magnified onto the thick logs of the cabin wall. Then he began to weave a tale of high mountains and proud men that rode among them, like princes surveying their estates, like lords high up in their strongholds where only the wind could touch them, and the world was free of pain and sorrow, and we were always young. So that's the intro from a book called Men for the Mountains by Sid Marty. Uh, that it kind of was a nice, nice, I don't know, captures the essence of this book. And I'll also be experimenting with how much interplay between reading the story as is versus interjecting side notes. I'll see how well I can do one or the other. I don't know. It's experimental. Part 1, November 2008. I just took a swig of my fireball whiskey and it starts to take the chill off. It started snowing today after two weeks of minus 25 degrees Celsius. My brain feels tired of scheming and studying. I've been cramming for the last two weeks so I can pass the BC Fallers standard exam. I'm challenging the test based on my experience on the chainsaw. With each step along the way, I've stretched myself into opportunities only found by stretching the truth. I landed a job cutting seismic lines for a mining outfit based on my experience falling danger trees on the local ski hill for firewood. The deal was sealed when the prospective boss told me that he was not going to check my references because he and the reference guy did not get along for some reason. Go figure. So there I am, busting balls, learning on the fly, and just getting by. By playing it cool and knowing just enough to make it seem like I know more. You hear that chicken out there? They always end up catching on, though. 
but by then you prove yourself trainable and capable and hardworking and you keep your job. And besides, after a summer of insane long hours on a fishing boat in Alaska, I figured I could do anything for eight hours. Oh my god, that chicken's not going to stop. My wife, Esna, and I had just returned north to live in Smithers, British Columbia as refugees from the madness of the lower main mainland, if not the Pacific Rim in general. We hunkered down around a wood stove in a small cabin located just five minutes' drive from town. It seemed to be the perfect place to homestead in a semi-urban environment. It also was the perfect place to raise a family and make a living in the harsh world of bushwork. As it turns out, Esna is six months pregnant and I am scrambling to make some cash. Though I had sworn off running a chainsaw after 400 days of work over four seasons, I find myself in the middle of, a, of climbing the hierarchy of the chainsaw world. In the world of chainsaw operators, the firewood collecting, line cutting, and slashing is at the bottom of the barrel. It may be tough and grueling, but you only top out about 300 a day while cutting millions to small to medium-sized trees. In the world of chainsaw operators, unless you have your follower's ticket, you are an amateur. In the world, chainsaw world of British Columbia in specific, falling trees has been a way of life. Basically, the bigger the trees, the more money you can earn and the more danger you put yourself in, naturally. I have been reading and rereading the official government-issued handbook that lays out in detail all of the do's and don'ts associated with falling trees. Today I went out with my friend to collect firewood as an excuse to practice falling some bigger trees. I was taking my time, making conventional undercuts and trying to line up the back cuts perfectly. On two of the four trees I did not cut enough holding wood so that left me standing there with two buried wedges and a tree that was not budging. I was able to make sketchy secondary cuts to the undercut of the first tree, but that was not working on the second one. It was a heavy leaner, and I was trying to get it to fall 90 degrees to where it wanted to fall. Both wedges are buried, and I am making quick cuts while staying ready to dash away at a given moment, at a moment's notice. That is a good way to make the tree jump off the holding wood or spin around 180 degrees and go in the opposite direction. I was nervous. Nick came over to offer a push and examine the cuts. He pulled one of the wedges out just as I was trying to turn to grab my saw, and bang! The holding wood exploded under the hanging tension and the tree power slammed to the ground, luckily in the intended direction. I scrambled to the ground and fell and lost my helmet. We were both safe, but as I sat there all disheveled, I began to have second thoughts about this tree falling business. $600 a day, risk versus reward. Gotta make a living. There's a looming recession, you know, these troubled times. So we buckled. We bucked the tree up and loaded it in the truck, and I sat here with my bottle of whiskey, listening to the fire crackle. It is really snowing out there, and windy, too. The ski hill up on Hudson Bay Mountain is getting hammered. The snow is cold and deep, and you can have it all to yourself, with no frenzy and no rush. Did I mention that I really like skiing? I do very much, and it, but does it pay the bills? Is it going to put my kid through college? Does saying, fuck it all, I'm going skiing, relieve my karmic debt? What about a maxed out line of credit? It is really snowing now, and the fire is roaring in the stove and in my belly. I know falling tree large trees is dangerous, but so is skiing the big mountains of Alaska and British Columbia. Cliffs, avalanches, exposure, and ice all conspire to wipe you out. You risk it all for nothing, if not the relief at the end of another dangerous day in the mountains. I figure it all comes down to gravity. It is all around us and treats everyone indifferently. You can go against it and be punished or move with it and be rewarded by ease of motion, existential bliss. The gravity pulls the tree to the ground on a cushion of needles, or it crushes your leg. You can jump off a cliff with skis on your feet and sail away with the wind, or land wrong and crush your leg under your own weight. That gravity is a tricky one. Most of these stories are related to gravity in one way or another. The highs and lows of living under the most natural of influences. The weight of a river, the weight of a huge snowpack, the weight of the ocean as pulled by the moon. I've been strongly influenced by her pull and release, if not 
outright traumatized at times, but you'd never guess as I struggle to remain objective in experience and description. It all comes down to the cliché of finding oneself, but what happens if you dig if you keep digging and when you finally blast your senses clean, there's nothing there at all except feigned emotions and a deadpan sense of humor. I am ready to have a baby, to see the world fresh through the eyes of an infant, and to always be thankful for every breath I take. Hmm, that was end of chapter one. Secrets of Alaska, chapter two. Growing up fishing. I can remember being scared at a young age. Our family was constantly out in search of adventure in the form of salmon fishing. My dad is a zealot to this day when it comes to the pursuit of the picky-eating, hard-fighting Alaska silver salmon, also known as the coho. The technique out in the ocean is a pretty standard troll maneuver. You rig the herring on a double hook, set up so the little fish spins in a natural manner as it is towed through the water. The fishing line is attached with a quick-release mechanism to a thick cable that carries a cannonball, a heavy lead ball used to keep the bait from rising to the surface. You put around in circles trying not to run into one of the hundreds of other recreational fishermen, all spinning circles in the rolling North Pacific. Once the coho swim up into the freshwater streams of their berth, you have to use a different technique. It is the true art in tricking the coho into swallowing a hook once it has reached fresh water. Out in the ocean, the coho is on a seafood diet, and the rivers... In the rivers, they turn a bit more cannibalistic, eating any eggs they see floating around. I think it's part nutrition, part rival elimination, question mark. To catch a coho, you hide a tiny hook inside an egg cluster. The salmon will come up and nibble-nibble very gently. The tip of the fishing pole will show a subtle tip-tip-tip. Suddenly, the fish will decide it is good to go and will turn to swim away, still not swallowing the bait completely. As the fisherman, you are paying the utmost attention to that movement when the fish turns to swim away, and you then you set the hook. On one hot weekend in mid-August, the whole family was slaying salmon. Two hours upstream from the mouth of the little Susitna River. I'm doing a little uh, edit as I go here. Little Susitna River. This particular trip was unique in two ways. It was the first time my dad had tried to navigate across the treacherous Cook Inlet, and it was the third time out in our new boat. My dad had just finished building the boat in our backyard in Anchorage. We had taken the boat out on two previous test trips on warm and relatively safe lakes, but this was different. The Upper Cook Inlet, the upper Cook Inlet is colored brown as it is choked full of sediment from the runoff of hundreds of glaciers. Along with shallow sandbars and huge tides, the area is prone to strong afternoon winds. The boat was 20 feet long and made of wood and fiberglass. The original plans called for an open skiff design, but Dad added a cabin that could sleep three. The next step in construction was to build an adjacent roof over the steering console and four seats. This was a minor thing to be dealt with later, as the season is short and the fish were plenty. The trip across was smooth and pleasant. We gained an amazing and rare perspective on downtown Anchorage that most people never see. We headed west until we came to the tip of Fire Island, then we turned due north. You could see Mount McKinley towering on the horizon as the mud-banked mouth of the Little Sioux gradually took us in. Soon we were S-turning upstream in a river with steep, muddy-cut banks on the outside of each turn. We were in the huge alluvial plain that grew under the constant melt of the Alaska range. Two hours from downtown and we were a world apart. We spent two glorious days catching six fish a day times five family members. Times five family members. The boat was already paying for itself tenfold. Even though we were an hour upstream from the ocean, the strong tidal currents eventually made their way upstream quite far. In this case, the boat had spent the night on a mud bank waiting for a wet exit on Sunday afternoon. 
Dad was a bit anxious to get back across the inlet before the winds came up, so he dropped prop churning basically in the mud, trying to dislodge the boat as soon as possible. Soon enough, we were zipping downstream with 30 fish, 3 kids, and a dirty dog. We came around the last bend in the river to face face to face with a steady 3-foot chop. Apparently, as the tide was coming upstream, the tailwind following us out of the north was pushing against the water, standing the waves into very short-length, tall waves. Soon the waves were stacking up into the 5-6-foot range as our little boat pounded into the brown froth. We dropped over each wave and with a resounding thud, cold spray would shower everyone on board. My mom quickly took to the familiar crying-slash-fetal position as the oblivious kids looked on. I remember the dog not looking very happy as she had to slip and slide around the cold deck with the fish sloshing around in the bloody water. Dad had to cut the throttle to half speed as he assured us that we were fine as we had to just get behind the lee of Fire Island. <coughs> right about then, the 60 horsepower outboard died. It stopped propelling us home, if you will. We floundered for a minute while Dad cursed. He turned the key and the motor started and then died again. Dad was troubleshooting fuel, air, spark. The outboard started again and he realized that the little stream of coolant water that should be squirting out the back was not flowing, save for a small dribble. The mud, he exclaimed as he, when he figured out that the mud from the riverbank had clogged the coolant system somewhere and the engine was overheating. So there's my dad hanging out over the back with a small poking tool as the boat is pitching and rolling about to become a headline. Finally, he dislodged the blockage and the stream of water burst forth as the motor sprang to life and the family cheered. Another hour of pounding and we were safe in the lee of the island. A year later, we were aiming to follow the same route across the inlet up the river, but this time a thick fog rolled in and we became disoriented. The waves seemed to be inexplicably growing in the fog as the props started to bottom out on the sand at the bottom of each wave. I took to the cabin with my brother and our friend as our dads tried to figure out what was going on. Just then the fog lifted and we realized we were in between Fire Island and the mainland in choppy, shallow choppy water. Abort mission! Repeatedly, the compass proved to be troublesome. Something about certain RPMs would send the compass spinning like we are in the Bermuda Triangle. Once we were out deer hunting on Colross Island in Prince William Sound in late October. On the day we were to leave, we awoke to find a Colross Passage under a half inch of ice. I was up on the bow with an oar trying to break the ice in search of open water. Eventually we found water and were zipping across College Fjord when the motor died. At least it was calm this time, eerily calm. It was flat water in all directions and clouds surrounding us to the distant horizon, no land in sight. It really did feel like the Bermuda Triangle. The compass even started to spin, even though the motor was not running. Soon enough, Dad figured out that the carburetor must have been icing up due to the cold, moist air when we were able to cruise back to Whittier at half speed. That was the end of Chapter 2. Chapter 3, Secrets of Alaska. This chapter is called Baseball. If the family was out not... If the family was not out defying death in the boat on the weekends, we were probably at the baseball diamond. Both my brother, Josh, and I were obsessed with playing baseball for about ten hours a day. It was either home run derby in the backyard or huge neighborhood pickup games in the cul-de-sac. There were three cul-de-sacs in a row with three different groups of kids. We would sometimes go to the second or third cul-de-sac to play the home teams, but the best games are always on the home, our own home turf. Sometimes we would play until the midnight under the midnight sun with parents hanging out the windows or sitting on a tailgate. It was a classic small-town Alaskan scene. Both my brother and I got onto real teams and climbed onto the all-star roster. My dad would be the umpire, and I would get so mad when he'd call me out trying to steal home. Like most things, baseball became more and more serious as I apparently was being groomed for the pros as a first baseman. It became too much. Our all-star team was coached by an ex-AAA player and present-day drill sergeant at the local army base. 
He single-handedly turned baseball into an extreme sport. With six-hour practices and running endless laps and drills and more laps, I later think he was insane. But as a kid, I took the beating as part of the game. His son played catcher, and he would tie him to a tree with his catching gear on and throw pitches at him to prove that it does not hurt to get hit by the ball. If you pulled your head from a ground ball or a curve ball or a fastball, for that matter, you had to run laps. He was a beefy guy and a solid pitcher. He'd be drilling fastballs, and he, we would hit them. He would intentionally bean you and make you run laps if you flinched. In the end, it took the fun out of it, and luckily for my, me, my parents were not the crazy overbearing types forcing me to play. Around the same time, in ninth grade or so, I was going through the same process in the world of hockey. I was burned out and sensing something else out there in the mountains and wilderness at the edge of town. So those are the first three chapters of Secrets of Alaska and other places that I'm going to kind of be reading through. And I might even be editing kind of on the fly, so it won't be the cleanest thing, but you'll, it'll be alright. I think we'll get into it and I can probably come up with some side stories as we go. Uh, if you like what you've seen, hit the subscribe button. If you want to hear more stories, because there's a lot more coming your way after we get through these nonfiction stories, or maybe I'll run in parallel, I've got an entire fictional novel that I'm going to start also reading, uh, along with all about the art and all the action sports stuff. We've got a lot going on around here. Cheers.